Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much for choosing us over the Brexit panel. And, and welcome to What Makes Us Human in the Age of AI. I'm Julian Clover. Amongst other things, I'm a presenter on Cambridge 105 Radio. And we have a collection of speakers for you from around the university uh, this afternoon. Um, Hadidio Gunes, uh, we've uh, decided, I think we, we've settled on robots expert, but we're not entirely sure as to uh, much more than that uh, that you do, as we'll find out in a little while's time. Uh, Allegra Hadija, who is a uh, university senior lecturer at the Judge Business School. Uh, we have author and lecturer Laura Dietz. And Stephen Cave, you'll remember, uh, he was listed in the original programme as being uh, from the Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence. He was going to have joined us today. Uh, but unfortunately, he's a little bit sick. But uh, the good news is that Kanta uh, uh, Dihal is here in his place, and she's actually also the co-author of uh, Stephen's forthcoming book, so she can uh, um, speak to that, which is where we're going to start uh, right now, and the long history of imagining intelligent machines and the paradox at the heart of what we want from them that sheds light on why we think they are a challenge what it means to be human. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming, everybody. Um, so, uh, as you just heard, I, like uh, Stephen Cave, work at the uh, Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence, which is an interdisciplinary research centre um, that, since 2016, has been working on a research around questions on the nature, ethics and impact of artificial intelligence. So um, I'm based at the University of Cambridge, but our centre is actually a collaboration between four universities, Cambridge, Oxford, Imperial College and Berkeley. So we are currently running 15 projects which range from responsible innovation to exploring the relationship between uh, machine and biological intelligence and uh, our researchers come from a very wide range of disciplines. So we have people working in computer science and machine learning um, but also in law and philosophy and my own discipline is film and literary studies. And we also work closely with industry, so uh, with the companies that are actually developing these uh, new technologies and with uh, policymakers. And I joined with my film and literature background in 2016 as a researcher on the AI Narratives project, uh, led by Dr. Stephen Cave, who, as you just heard, can't be here today due to illness. Um, that project was uh, a collaboration between our centre and the Royal Society, and the project's overall aim was to examine the stories that we tell about AI and the impact those stories have. So in this project, we soon discovered that the narratives around artificial intelligence tend to be very extreme, either wildly utopian or horrendously dystopian. Um, in the very earliest history of intelligent machines, those imaginings seem to have been mostly hopeful. Um, so there were fantasies of trusty mechanical helpers. But as the technology itself increased in power, these hopes began to tip into fears. Fears inherent in the very idea of autonomous creations that were just waiting to emerge. So the first AIs, the very first story about AI that we've been able to find, presents them as serving women. The oldest known story of artificial intelligence can be found in the Iliad by the Greek poet Homer, 
uh, dating from roughly the 8th century BCE. So Hephaestus, who is a disabled god, the god of smithing, made machines that looked like women to help him out in his forge. Um, so Homer describes them as attendants made of gold, which seemed like living maidens. In their hearts there is intelligence, and they have voice and vigor. And from the immortal gods they have learned skills. And they appear as very faithfully serving their master. And other myths attribute other technological wonders to Hephaestus, such as Talos, a great bronze automaton that patrolled the shores of Crete, throwing stones at pirates and invaders, the first killer robot. In these stories, the intelligent machines represent very straightforward hopes, the ideal servant who always obeys, the perfect soldier who never tires. But then, with the declining influence of Greece, the Latin West, um, in the, just before the Middle Ages, entered a very long period of perhaps a thousand years in which all these hopes associated with automata were lost because all the skills around automaton making themselves were lost. But eventually, in the Middle Ages, people started building clockwork machines again, and the same rules returned in the Latin Christian imagination. The intelligent machines once, or, once more took on their old warrior forms. So, in, um, so this is a picture of Lancelot, the knight uh, fighting copper knights that were guarding a secret gateway. And fast forward another few centuries, we see that these same hopes remain, along with the intelligent machines that are supposed to fulfill them. So the second half of the 17th century through to the early 19th century was the heyday of automata in Europe. So in this period, you had master craftsmen building astonishing marvels of art imitating life, clockwork mechanisms such as Jacques de Vaucanson's duck that would appear to eat and drink and even defecate. Now, these machines were, of course, not intelligent machines, and they weren't autonomous either. You wind them up, and they do this certain thing, like pecking up grains. But it did suggest that life like androids, machines that could behave like humans, might be within reach. So a new hope for AI emerged that it could fulfill all of our interpersonal wishes. So it could be the perfect friend, for example, always there, always ready to listen, never demanding anything in return. But with that hope came new fears of transgression and deceit. So in E.T.A. Hoffman's short story, The Sandman, for example, from 1816, the protagonist Nathaniel is bewitched by this beautiful maiden called Olympia, and he's head over heels in love with her, and he does a lot of wooing and paying visits to her and spending hours sitting next to her on a sofa, looking in her beautiful eyes. And eventually he discovers that she is an automaton. Now, I must say, he must have been very blinded by love indeed. <laughs> also because Olympia couldn't actually speak. Um, but for him it was quite a surprise, and he, at the end of the story it drives him insane. 
Now, in the 20th century, that's when the imaginaries around intelligent machines really exploded. This was a time, the early 20th century, of enormous upheaval. There was rapid industrialization, disrupt disrupting old ways of life, replacing the rhythms of the countryside with the rhythms of the factory, the machine, the production uh, line. It was a time of revolution. It was a time of mechanized warfare. And against this backdrop, the term robot was born. Uh, in Karel Chapek's 1920 play RUR, Rossum's Universal Robots, and famously, in the very work in which the term robot was invented, the robots rebel against their creators and destroy them. And that narrative of the AI uprising has proven to be one of the most potent of all our AI fears. It's retold repeatedly in the context of new technologies. So with the rise of the networked computer, we got Skynet, which is now one of the most prevalent images uh, slapped, especially in the tabloids, on stories of AI. But then um, you have the matrix in which intelligent machines farm humans um, uh, who, who unwillingly inhabit um, a, a virtual reality. And in now in the 21st century, we have... Um, the film Ex Machina, and the TV series Westworld. So we, once again, we have those sophisticated robots overthrowing their wet wear masters. And as that history shows, it seems that it's hard to be neutral about the prospect of intelligent machines. They seem to provoke us to these imaginative extremes. And so together with Stephen Cave, I've been spending this last year writing a book in which we try to find out why? So we frame our, uh, our, our analysis by means of a concept that we call the Promethean paradox. And that is the idea that technology is a source of power and pride on the one hand, and of feelings of inadequacy and dependence on the other. So according to going once again back to the myths of ancient Greece, Prometheus on the picture here, gave humans their tool-making skills and famously fire. He stole it from the gods and he gave it to humans. And especially in Plato's version of the myth, the reason why he does this is because... So Prometheus' brother, Epimetheus, was, uh, was told to give useful attributes to all the other animals. So to give each animal something that would make it survive, like claws or fur to keep it warm or hooves so it could run fast or um, uh, snouts that could smell really well. And then by the time he got to humans, he'd run out. And so, Plato says, man alone was naked and shoeless and had neither bed nor arms of defense. And so Prometheus took pity and um, his gifts were intended to compensate for this. Technology was going to be human special power, that which distinguished humans from all the other uh, animals and enabled humans to flourish. Uh, but that means that not only do humans alone create technology, but just as important, technology is essential to what it means to be human. And artificial intelligence 
is a tool intended, as all these stories express, to make our lives easier. But it's not an ordinary tool, not an ordinary kitchen appliance. Artificial intelligence is portrayed as some kind of ultimate tool, a kind of master technology. And that's the source of the extravagant hopes. And that idea that AI as the master technology is the source of boundless power underlies what we call the Promethean paradox. Because while it has immense power to be beneficial, the technological prowess is itself a threat. The, uh, the other side of this is, on the one hand, inadequacy. So the idea that without technology, a human is unfit for the world. So the smallest of mammals can survive by itself without tools, but humans can't. But worse, technology could push us further into that idea of inadequacy. The more we outsource skills to our tools, like navigation skills to our map apps, the more reduced we become. And in our day and age, we rely on thousands of technologies that keep us alive and without which we may as a society couldn't function for more than three days um, and of which we don't understand individually each of us how they work and from that dependence and that lack of understanding grows another fear that we might lose control of our tools ai is supposed to be an intelligent tool a tool with attributes that we normally associate with humans but that means that a tool with Goals could have goals that misalign with ours. A smart machine could outsmart us. And a machine with autonomy could choose to disobey. So that is the source of our extravagant fears. And that means that our hopes and our fears are inextricably entwined. To fulfill the hopes, you must have machines that have minds of their own. But that gives them the capacity to deceive or replace us or rebel. So AI is the ultimate form of this Promethean paradox. It conjures extreme hopes of instant gratification and freedom from drudgery, but also extreme fears of becoming obsolete and losing control. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Festival of Ideas always gives me a, a little bit of surprise. Um, so I was surprised when you started off with Homer uh, there. I'm wondering, though, do writers generally stick with, if you like, an extension of what's familiar to them, the, the world at the time that they, were, that they were writing, and then just go off to the side just a little bit to, mm. to, to make it dangerous? Well, um, what we see is uh, that writers take these stories that they are familiar with, but that they're not necessarily from their time. This is how old they are. They can be thousands of years old, and those are the stories that people work with. And in, in That's why the Homer example struck yes, me, really. Yes. It's, it's, not, it's not that different, if you like, from that 1920s clip you, you showed from the early film in a roundabout way. Yes, uh, not very much, no, but that also means that now there is a clash with real technology, because now... The technology that suggests that intelligent machines might be at some point being developed and technologies especially that are called AI now um, have nothing in common with these golden handmaidens and killer robots that we've been imagining for thousands of years and that's where 
um, pictures of the Terminator in newspapers when you talk about drones are not going to help. No. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Right, let's uh, introduce you to you now, uh, Dr. Allegra Hadida, who's going to be uh, speaking to us about uh, an ongoing research project on strategic decision-making and uh, dealing as well with the relative importance and optimal mix of human decision-makers and machine algorithms when wow. predicting new product success. success. Well, thanks a lot, Julian, Thank for you. this introduction. I think I have nothing to add. <laughs> um, so, as Julian said, I'm, uh, I'm, I work in the business school. Uh, it's, a, an un it's an honor and a pleasure to be invited to participate in this panel, so thank you. Uh, as a French citizen, I probably, you know, I'd love to hear what's happening next door, <laughs> but uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's get on with that. Um, not Brexit, it's the other thing. Okay, so, so my research is actually in the field of strategic management. And in particular, is, is the sound okay? I feel like there's a, yeah? Oh, cool. Uh, in particular, I look at the uh, optimal combination of inputs from human decision makers and uh, uh, computer algorithms when making strategic decisions and forecasting decisions on the success of new products and services. Now, when Guy Hans, uh, private equity group Terra Firma, took over EMI Music in 2007, Hans was quoted as saying, what we're doing is taking the power away from the artist and repertoire guys, in other words, the talent scouts, and putting it with the suits, the guys who systematically work out how to sell music. And that actually led myself and my then PhD student uh, Dr. Matthias Seifert, to uh, look, you know, it led us kind of straight into a rethink of Isaac Asimov's Frankenstein complex. In an age of AI and big data, will humans become obsolete? Uh, similar efforts to get rid of industry experts and rely on a pure data analytical approach have become mainstream in music, as we've seen with Spotify, in film, with Netflix, and in sports, and you know, the, uh, Michael Lewis's Moneyball book and adaptation with um, uh, Brad Pitt are good illustrations of this in baseball. In, just in June last year, a Financial Times article proposed that artificial intelligence will soon become more proficient than medical doctors in oncology. And that's kind of a, a, an interesting statement because it means by, you know, by sidelining human expertise and experience, uh, that actually raises huge ethical issues of letting machines decide on human life and death uh, decisions. Uh, however, what if indeed they are better than we are in making those decisions? So together with Matthias, what we did, we uh, set out to try and understand what, uh, well, when and to what extent human managers can sensibly base their decisions on model outputs, when and to what extent managers should complement model outputs with expert judgment, and in a second phase of the project, together with Enno Simpson from University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Andreas Ezangerich from Imperial College London, what type of information managers should rely on when making sales predictions. Now the good news, spoiler alert, good news for, for us humans is that our research actually shows so far that we still matter in an age of data analytics and in an age of artificial intelligence. 
The best predictive outcomes we found are achieved when humans and machines work together to problem solve with more or less of one or the other, depending on the nature of the task at hand. So we turned in our project, we turned to the music industry and we asked 180 people, half of them music industry specialists, artists and repertoire managers in labels, and half of them complete novices, so students at two universities, in, one in the UK and one in Germany, to predict top 100 positions for new singles from both established artists and newcomers. And we built our questionnaires in such a way that every single could be advertised for roughly the same period of time. We used a Brunswick lens model as the computer algorithm in the experiment to attempt the same prediction as the humans, and then we assessed the accuracy of the human and um, computer predictions. Now, we gave the computer and the human judges the same information. We gave them contextual product information in the form of a 30-second sound sample, the price of the single, the release date of the album, and promotional information, how much marketing money was spent on this particular release, a photograph of the artist, um, social media presence of the artist, and other cues like these. And we gave them as well historical product information based on the artist's success history so far, the awards they got, a uh, number of singles they've released, the albums, the tours, etc. Now, our findings on this first study revealed three things. The first one is that the type of task is paramount, and it is therefore essential to factor it in in any decision-making process. The second thing that it, our study revealed is that a combination of computer algorithm and human brain power works best. Um, when singles by established artists were considered, the software tended to perform better than human decision makers. However, when assessing the success, the future success of new artists with no track record of success, the human decision makers performed better. And a total of three expert human opinions combined with the software worked best of all. Third, uh, the end users, the, uh, those students we asked, the novices we asked for predictions, were only able to accurately predict the success of new singles in 2% of the cases. So the context is vitally important in deciding which combination of human expertise and computer modeling judgments should be based on. And this, I believe, is part of the answer this panel, um, of the, it's part of it, it's part of the answer to the question that was um, raised by this panel. Particularly in uncertain situations, what makes us human in an age of AI may be our ability to deal with the unknown, to improvise, and, and then to read between the lines of the computer code. So in order to test this proposition, we ran this second analysis, and we focused in this second analysis on the type of information we should give human decision makers and machines when reaching optimal decisions. Um, our findings revealed two things. First, in order to increase predictive accuracy when only managerial judgments are employed, so in other words, when the humans do not have access to AI or a computer system, uh, both historical and contextual data should be provided to those decision makers. However, if the managers are able to rely on data analytics, 
Decision support provided to them should include contextual data, yet it should exclude as much as possible historical data. In other words, looking into the rearview mirror introduces noise as the historical data and information is already taken care of by the computer, by the artificial intelligence. These combined results lead to five recommendations when developing new products and new services. The first one is to always combine com um, um, computer models and human judge or judges. The second one is to always assess the structure of a task before assigning weight to humans or machine predictors. The third one is that the more novel, the more unique the task appears to be, the more likely it is that expert diagnosis, diagnosis will work best. Fourth recommendation, beware of the wisdom of the crowd and of end-user forecasts. And the fifth one, uh, deriving um, uh, directly from our second experiment, in volatile environments, consider withholding historical information and fo focusing on contextual information when making a judgment call. Now, in practice, we studied the music industry, but however, we believe that our you know, pretty simple and straightforward recommendations would also work quite well uh, in other types of blockbuster cultural industries like publishing, that Laura is going to talk about uh, shortly, cinema or television, in medical diagnosis, and the use of IBM's Watson computer in medical applications is a case in point of this, and in sports team selection. Particularly with regard to the conclusion of our second study, we believe firefighters and emergency rescue units who routinely face situations when they have little time to process incomplete, highly uncertain information could find those results and those recommendations quite useful. Uh, we believe, we hope that these recommendations are relevant in a context where companies all around the world and across industries increasingly rely on data analytics and on artificial intelligence to create new products and services and to predict their success. Uh, those results show that these inputs should always be complemented by human expertise and that these human inputs go well beyond writing the codes, artificial intelligence initially relies on. Now, if you rely exclusively on data analytics and artificial intelligence when developing new products or services, that actually poses a danger to creativity, as algorithms tend to make us more conservative in our creation and consumption of products and services, in particular in the field of arts and culture. So take the example of Spotify, for instance. We all use Spotify. Uh, to qualify as having been listened to on Spotify, a song needs to have been listened to, needs to have been played for 30 seconds. This is an extremely relevant and sensible rule, but as a result of it, the opening 30 seconds of songs have become increasingly predictable, and songs are getting shorter, because as an artist, I, I've got an interest, a financial interest, in cramming as many songs as possible on a single album because I'm making money out of single songs, not out of the album. That increases the opportunities for payment. And the same goes for Netflix, which predictive algorithm will direct our gaze towards similar shows or movies than the, as the ones we've watched in the past. However, there's one limitation with Netflix. And there was an article this morning in The, uh, the Independent uh, mentioning some research that says that 35% of millennials, 19% of Gen Xers, and 13% of baby boomers share their passwords on streaming services. 
And uh, as uh, Netflix estimates that they're basically around 9% of their users do that, that actually results in millions of unrealized income. Uh, that circumvents their business model, and more importantly for us in the context of this panel, it um, endangers the accuracy of their algorithm. Netflix is freaking out at the moment because of this. I believe it's great news because uh, it's brilliant because that produces happy recommendation surprises for us viewers. Very briefly, I'd like to conclude with one provocation by circling back to Leo Tolstoy, who wrote in an essay in 1897, uh, an essay titled What is Art?, he wrote, art is a human activity that begins when people use a medium, be it literature, poetry, painting, sculpture, etc., to communicate to others feelings they once experienced or lived through, such as they, in turn, get infected by and experience those feelings. So far, and please correct me if I'm wrong, artificial intelligence and machines do not have feelings. Uh, what they produce, therefore, does not qualify as art. In absence of agency, mind or feeling, there is no art. And ultimately, maybe what makes us human in the age of AI, ultimately that may be our agency and our ability to feel, to empathize, and to emote. Thank you. Thank you very much. I am actually aware of a, of a technology, which I think actually probably runs from AI, which can predict where there is out-of-home viewing to Netflix by somebody with whom the password has been shared. So it sort of comes around to the beginning again. But I, I'm wondering specifically, the thing about the Netflix algorithm and ones like it, is that it sends you down a tunnel. Mm -hmm. If I'm at home and watch, I don't know, something like uh, Gotham, the Batman series, the chances are it will give me some other light sci-fi, the fact that I might also want to watch a serious documentary, it's not actually showing me those. And that's kind of where the, the AI fails, isn't it? Well, I mean, there's different levels to the algorithm uh, that Netflix employs, and, and, and they have a system that suggests, you know, kind of unexpected viewing on their algorithm. The, the, the real problem comes when, you know, so, uh, uh, Julian, you, are you sharing your password? Password with other people, or was like, I couldn't possibly. What, what happens here stays here, right? I mean, it's like, uh, but no, on average, all of us, well, most of us, or some of us, uh, I know people who um, <laughs> share their passwords with their friends and families, and uh, you know, the, the, the neighbor across the street because he looks cute and he's kind of you know, interesting. I know that happens a lot of the time, and the problem is that what you watch is probably different from what your grandmother watches or your five-year-old kid watches. And that completely blurs the algorithm and the recommendations. Mm. Well, thank you, thank you very much indeed. We might explore uh, some of those and some questions at the end. But now let me introduce to you uh, Dr. Laura Dietz, who is going to look at readers' attitudes uh, towards the use of machine learning and uh, AI more generally. And as a journalist, I'm concerned as to how soon it puts me out of work. <laughs> Spoilers, not immediately. Well, thank you for coming today. <laughs> um, and I agree with Allegra, it's lovely to be asked and thank you for having me. Um, I'll be talking in a much more uh, narrow way about publishing. Um, uh, to follow Kanta and Allegra, focusing on AI in the publishing industry, uh, to borrow John Thompson's phrase, looking at how AI is used by the merchants of culture. Uh, if we're interested in this question for the panel today, in whether automation will make us redundant, 
or whether there are qualities that are essentially human that will become perhaps more sought after. Uh, we can examine how readers respond uh, when AI is introduced to some very specific processes in publishing kind of what we know uh, and how we feel when we're on the reader side about the hand of AI on literature and on literary culture. Publishing, um, many of us work in it, many of us, you know, we all read it, uh, is like a number of other cultural industries, AI is now embedded in a huge number of processes, uh, whether it's described as that and perhaps recognized by us as readers as such. Uh, AI is central to publishers' approaches to discoverability, of course. Uh, the tailored recommendations uh, Legger was talking about in relation to Netflix, Amazon algorithms, if you like that, you'll like this. Um, <clears throat> it's probably fair to say um, that when it comes to commissioning, you know, uh, book publishing is well behind journalism when it comes to using those kinds of augmenting decisions about which books to bring out. Um, but it's no longer exotic, you know, not when there are startup companies that are offering machine learning services to publishers and to authors to say, we'll take what you want to produce and we'll compare it to what's come before to say whether or not it's going to be a bestseller. Whether it's something like Jelly Book saying, we'll give it to beta readers, we'll have them read it in our app, and we know how they, people read, say, the new Stephen King, when they pause, when they turn the page, when they set it down, when they slow down, when they give up. Um, and if, uh, if your new novel doesn't conform to a bestseller pattern, it's a turkey, can it? Pull the marketing budget, don't publish the book. Uh, or for something like Archer Jockers to take the text of the novel and to analyze it, um, again, using machine learning, uh, to look for patterns, say, which characters are speaking, what kind of themes are being discussed, what words appear at the same time, when, do the, when does it become more positive according to sentiment analysis, when does it become more negative, and to say, is it like this corpus of bestsellers or is it not like this corpus of bestsellers? And if it's not like that corpus of bestsellers, don't publish it and problematic for us, say, for the same reasons. Leaving aside the idea, do we really read a free sample for a beta read novel by an unknown author the way we read the new Stephen King? Uh, <clears throat> but uh, in terms of text creation, there's a tremendous tradition of computer-generated text, machine-written novels, um, going back some time, and the experimental literature side. Uh, things like Tailspin from the 70s, where we really want to go back, poetry generating machines like Eureka from the Victorian era. Um, but in terms of commercial products, you know, for something, a machine-generated text to be for sale and to potentially be competing with a human-generated um, piece of a news article, uh, a report, this is relatively new. Of course, there are things like the Associated Press or Forbes offering computer-generated reports based on latest stock market activity. But I think we can fairly say that it's a fairly early days compared to some of these other applications of AI and publishing. <clears throat> but public acceptance, how we feel as readers about these introductions of AI into human, previously human processes uh, can't be taken for granted. Uh, Leah Henriksen um, has identified a hermeneutic contract. It's a term she uses to discuss uh, the process where readers are kind of seeking intention as part of the process of just finding meaning in a text. Uh, a contract that the exhausted modern reader, as she puts it, keeps striving uh, to make computer-generated texts adhere 
Uh, her recent survey of about 500 uh, readers when confronted with a computer-generated news article, um, a third were willing to assign authorship to an NLG system, uh, a natural language generation one, uh, that anyone was willing to assign authorship and say, yes, the NLG system wrote it, is going to be a bit of a shock uh, to readers of Hofstetter. Um, but most of the rest uh, reported that it was impossible to assign authorship. Um, and most, or that the author was, you know, as Hofstetter or, or Eve would say, was the programmer who made the system, or the person who, who funded the system, or the person who owns the copyright. Uh, a sense that the computer is in charge, or that no one is in charge, not sitting very well with our experience of finding the author in traditionally made texts. On, in my own research, in surveys, in focus groups, in interviews, in reading experiments uh, with readers and print and digital texts, um, readers express not just an exasperation, but actually using the word hate and frequently in relation to tailored reading of the kind offered you know, as a feature by book retailers like Amazon. Uh, but Amazon really singled out as a name in particular to associate with algorithm-driven suggestions and recommendations. Some readers like recommendations. Some of us just find them a bit of a nuisance because they're not always relevant. But words like corrupt, uh, judgmental, embarrassing, insulting, uh, describe an experience of these recommendations uh, that is worse than a nuisance as an affront, uh, something that shows us a false image of our reading selves and we respond very negatively to this. This is a picture of you. This is a picture of your reading, who you are as a reader. And people saying, no, absolutely not. Um, <clears throat> really, you think I'm that kind of person, as one responded put it. That's it, go on. It's very notable how often participants <laughs> refer to an Amazon recommendation algorithm as if it were a person, as a they or a you that can judge or insult. They're judging you, it's an insult. And inflict pain as if it were another human a dismissing or disrespecting them, again, kind of finding a human where no human actually sits. Uh, this could be dismissed as lip service, uh, as readers grousing about tracking when we're not really bothered about it, we doesn't really change our behavior, uh, except uh, that survey data offers some evidence that concern over, say, this kind of tracking over tailored reading uh, is not an isolated value. Uh, choosing print because no one is tracking what I buy or what I read, uh, aligns with significant patterns uh, in book reading and book buying, uh, specifically avoidance of Amazon for e-reading. Interestingly, not avoiding Amazon for physical print book buying, they deliver it to your house, or avoidance of other e-book retailers like Apple, just Amazon set apart, uh, suffering from this image problem, we might say. Uh, and it also aligns strongly with other values about reading. Um, for agreement with this statement, uh, choosing print because no one is tracking or what I buy or when I read. Age and gender have no predictive power as to whether or not someone's going to agree with that statement. Um, but agreement with other statements about reading, things like, I prefer to support traditional bookshops, or I would describe myself as a bibliophile, uh, or a printed book is more enjoyable to handle and use have really good predictive power as to whether you're going to be bothered by that kind of, of tracking. 
Uh, political scientists in the U.S. have found that attitudes towards everyday surveillance um, align much more strongly, are much more uh, predictable um, by political party, uh, whether you vote Democrat or whether you vote Republican, as opposed to demographics of age and gender or location. Uh, if resistance to tailored reading to this kind of AI-assisted recommendations um, and following what you read and when you, when you read it and when you turn the page, uh, if it's associated with this cluster of values that we might describe as bookish values, um, it could be argued that resistance to this kind of tailoring is emerging as a component of a readerly self-image and a self-consciously bookish identity. These reservations may not apply to other creative industries. Uh, we grant books a special status. Uh, Richards argues that books and reading have a unique position when it comes to intellectual privacy as well. So those offended by tailored reading may not be similarly offended by uh, tailored reading, uh, tailored listening, uh, tailored playing, tailored viewing. Um, but if a significant population of readers is finding that the insertion of AI into specific publishing processes comes across as irresponsible, something shabby, something that the industry is doing, to use a very gendered cliche, uh, insulting the reader by sending a computer to do a man's job, it's probably not something the publishing industry should ignore. I wanted to ask you quickly about something which uh, you said at the beginning, and this was this idea of publishers looking at when people gave up on a Kindle title. Mm -hmm. Do we know, is there any evidence, as to how somebody who buys a Kindle book, mm -hmm. or other ones are available, of course, as opposed uh -huh. to regular paperback, do mm -hmm. they... Do they are, are the reading patterns the same, or mm -hmm. uh, and is, is it a genuine predictor? Then, oh, this is, you, you see them released all the time. Like I think Kobo on a regular basis would release like the, the top few books, the things bought on Kobo but never read. That means like you know, it's like everyone bought the new Don Tard didn't read it, uh, compared to the ones people bought and then actually read. So it's a lot of fun, I think, to look at those kind of analytics. But um, the, at least the what reaches us in terms of um, uh, of, of press releases is quite crude and kind of quite top level. Um, and the people who really have the data, Amazon really has the data, and they're not sharing. So it's difficult to say. That's a real part. I, I, I see this all the time uh -huh. of uh, of companies not not sharing mm -hmm. sharing the data. It's a whole sort of WikiLeaks waiting to happen almost, isn't it? <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> a, a literary WikiLeaks, perhaps, at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank, thanks very much for now. It's, uh, move on to our, our final presentation. Uh, Dr. Hadeja uh, Gunes, Associate Professor and Director of Effective Intelligence and Robotics Group at the University of Cambridge's Department of Computer Science and Technology. And we're going to look at areas of effective computing and social signal processing. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hello, everyone. <laughs> so, also, I'm quite happy to be here. I know why I'm the last one now, because I have to take the blame of all the AI-related <laughs> developments, I suppose, because I'm the computer scientist in the room. Uh, but I have quite a positive uh, outlook regarding how we can create human-centered technology, and I really believe that the future of AI is humans plus machines, which was already actually emphasized by, <laughs> by Hadida. Um, so basically, I will focus my uh, examples and discussion along something we call human-machine co-behavior. So there is actually now the emergence of human-machine co-behavior. What we mean by this is that humans shape machine behavior. 
how we do that, we do that through different things, but here I put some examples through design and direct engineering. So us, the creators, <laughs> the technology people, through algorithms, we actually shape the machine behavior, but also through active human input and passive observation. So humans provide the data. And I'll give you examples of, of things we create. Uh, the second part is machines shape human behavior. So basically, intelligent systems uh, are capable of altering human beliefs and behaviors. And also, by doing this, sometimes they cause the emergence of unforeseen human behavior. So this is what I'm going to focus on with examples. Uh, the first one is uh, from something we created. Uh, this was actually done as a collaboration with uh, clinical neuroscience in Cambridge, particularly focusing on cognitive training, uh, because there are people that later on get diagnosed with dementia or you know they have the uh, possible uh, aspects that relate to dementia so it has been shown that cognitive training can help related to working memory and episodic memory so here the goal was uh, whether and how we can create a VR based adaptive game uh, cognitive training game environment and here I put actually the details to give you a sense of how we create such technology so we have the human uh, I don't know if they have a pointer, probably I didn't bring mine. But we have the human, you see there, that's the user wearing the, the VR glasses. Then we have to sense the behavior, uh, the emotion, and, and even the expressivity of this, of this person. We have to do this through various sensors and can be done through cameras, uh, audio processing, biosignal processing. And then, of course, we need to actually gather data. So there I have data acquisition. And data annotation means we also have to have labels for this data. In this particular case, you see on the right-hand side, it's self-annotated data, which means after the participants take part in our study, they annotate actually how they felt throughout the game. And they, ha they have to do different sessions. And using all of this data, then we extract features that can be used by computers and machines to create predictive models, which are also known nowadays as AI, let's say. Then we have to evaluate the performance and so on. But what is important is this is enough uh, only to a certain extent. What we need is context. And again, Hadida mentioned this uh, in her different research. So we need to interpret all of these things in a context-sensitive manner. This is still a very difficult problem. But if we can interpret where the person is, who the person is, what they're doing, what the task is and so on, and add that interpretation, then we can create adaptation and response on the game side. There, what you see is actually uh, a supermarket environment, which I will give an example. But the idea is that then we will have a closed-loop interaction, sensing the user and adapting things based on what the user is doing. So in this study, we had two tasks. So the first one is the working memory task, and for this, we created a virtual supermarket because that's realistic. People start forgetting things, but they still have to survive, do their day-to-day -day activities. The second one is episodic memory task, and that was uh, creating a virtual multi-room museum. So here how the uh, supermarket environment looks. So the person has these two motion-sensing controllers. Uh, they're also wearing this virtual reality headset. And then they are provided, you see basically a basket, they are provided a list of items that they need to remember, and they have to go around the supermarket so they can zoom in and out and move around, pick up different items. So for correctly picked items, they get certain uh, points and so on. 
And for the virtual museum environment, here the idea is that they're in a museum and certain items are shown uh, with green arrows up there. These items, they have to remember what these items are and where they're located. So once they do this, then they're taken back to the entrance of the museum. Now they have to enter. And in this case, they actually have to, this is the retrieval phase, they have to remember which item was located where. And then again, they get points for correctly placed items and so on. So this was done, the data acquisition was done with 18 participants. Here what you see is of course, because we have a virtual reality headset, we cannot really do the expression analysis using normal cameras. Instead what we have is, we have facial electromyograms, so these are sensors that uh, we place inside, and we did this uh, in collaboration with a company called Entech. So then we use those sensors to actually sense what's happening with the person's upper face. And then, as I said, for labeling, they provide their uh, own annotation in terms of how they felt uh, after uh, each, basically, interaction. Then, based on this, we create uh, our, our system and algorithm. But the important bit now is uh, once we can uh, classify how they actually express, the next step is the adaptation. Can we adapt? basically this cognitive training game based on how the person is behaving. Because that's usually the missing link. In technology, you can have VR you know, games and so on, but they're not dynamic, they don't adapt to the person. So this is basically the missing that link that we have to fill. And for this, we, allow, we rely on the flow theory. So what this means is, in a gaming environment, if you want to encourage and engage someone, you have to keep them in a state of flow. So that means you should use their full potential to engage them, so they don't feel like they're getting bored, but in such a way that you're not forcing them too much that they start feeling anxious. So that's the whole goal. And to be able to do that, we really have to have a sense of their expressivity and affective state or emotional state so that we can keep them in the state of flow. So that, that's basically the idea. So we do adaptation based on that. And uh, the final bit of the study was we did a, a short study to test this system that was trained with these 18 participants' data on a completely set of uh, 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 different target user groups that are uh, older. So this was actually provided by clinical neuroscience, so they got in touch with them and so on. The table is long, but what we see here is that when, so they played both the adaptive and non-adaptive version. So in the adaptive version, they actually have these increased feelings of competence. This is again based on the questionnaires we do with them afterwards. But sometimes they also have these decreased feelings of challenge, but this is in correspondence with increases in feeling of flow. So there, of course, there is some aspects that need to be improved, but we can see that the adaptive version works much better. So now going to this uh, claim that I have in terms of emergence of human-machine co-behavior, so humans shape machine behavior. You clearly saw how this is. We shape the behavior of how the system will do, will adapt, for instance, through gathering data from actual people. And then, of course, machines shape human behavior, so we saw that the system can alter how people feel about it. So for instance, increasing feeling of competence and so on. But also for instance, if in this particular context they have to wear certain uh, headset, this might create some constraints that they might not express the same way they would express without the headset. So of course, machines actually shape the behavior in both physical and, and psychological ways. Um, 
The example too I want to give is not from my research group, but uh, for instance, again, we can create virtual humans for healthcare support. Similarly, we can do sensing of their audiovisual behavior in terms of head nods, shakes, expressivity. And this has been actually done in University of Southern California in the US, uh, particularly for people that are not very comfortable with face-to-face -face therapy. So as something that can be explored uh, for healthcare support through virtual humans. Now, example three I want to focus on relates to telepresence robotics. So what telepresence robotics means, this is not autonomous robots um, like the Terminator that's going to take over the world, uh, but these are actually avatars, which means it's a robot and it doesn't actually autonomously do anything. It just replicates what the human user is doing usually elsewhere, so they're not co-located. In this image, for the example or for the purpose of uh, example uh, showing, they are in the same place, but usually the person will be somewhere else, would be wearing this headset again, because the robot has cameras and through the headset the person can see actually what the robot is seeing and can control the robot through their uh, behavior, so actions, but also through sounds. So they can actually, it's possible for us to project all of these onto the robot. And in that way, the robot becomes the avatar of the, of the human. So this has many applications, but actually this in reality has been already trialed last year in December in Tokyo. So they created a, an alternative cafe in Tokyo, and it was staffed by robots that were controlled by paralyzed people. So of course for this you have to create certain interfaces depending on who the user is, but essentially this is a very good example where you can start including some of the people who are not able to access public spaces as much as normal people would do. They could then access these spaces in different ways. So they could actually see through the robot's eyes when the robot is moving, but they could also do things. So actually they were getting paid, for instance, for controlling these robots. So this is another example where, again, we have this aspect of uh, machines shaping humans and even humans' lives, but also humans shaping machines' behavior. Of course, when we move to such settings and we start talking about being represented by a robot, what becomes important is many different aspects of being human. So this is usually what happens when two humans communicate. We have the sender, which I didn't put there, and I'm going to put now a robot there, but uh, it's a spoiler. So usually we have a sender of cues and the receiver end of these cues. So when we communicate with each other, all of these things are constantly communicated, either consciously or unconsciously. So we have these first impressions. If it's someone I do not know, I come into the room, I start forming all these different impressions. And for this, I use basically appearance, distance cues, how I sit, how I walk, how I talk. All of these things create actually uh, certain codes and messages for the receiver end who then says, oh, I trust this person, I like this person, maybe I don't like this person, and so on. So when we replace this with a robot, of course, this becomes even more complicated. And there are a lot of open questions. I mean, we don't have all the answers as to how these things are shaped or changed. So this is a whole research area like human-robot interaction and social robotics is focusing on this. And then even things like stereotypes come to play, and Allegra mentioned some of these things from movies, but for instance, if we are represented by a robot, the robotic appearance could create certain stereotypes. Perhaps 
the perception of personality changes, like we are perceived less trustworthy perhaps. Also the robotic behavior might affect how the perception of emotions are, perhaps less emotional because it is robotic behavior. So the important thing is basically machine appearance and behavior really shape human behaviors in both intended and unintended ways. And because, as you saw from uh, my first example, machines and systems learn from data. So that means when there are failures in the machine, they're usually linked to data. For instance, data is biased, data is imperfect, labels are imperfect. Also, uh, Hadida mentioned, if we rely on just the crowd wisdom, well, the crowd wisdom may be imperfect in that case. So all of these things actually create certain level of failures. So when we talk about human versus machine behavior, machines may exhibit forms of intelligence and behavior that are qualitatively different from humans. I really want to emphasize this because I do work on emotional intelligence, artificial emotional intelligence. But artificial emotional intelligence is not human emotional intelligence. So this is what we need to bear in mind. We usually just keep comparing these two, but they're inherently different. And the problem is, we still have some way to go to understand machine behavior. Because it's sort of emerging, it is new. This needs to be studied from multiple perspectives, and actually it's very encouraging that business people are studying it from different perspectives, we are looking at it. But most of the time, uh, the important thing is that machine behavior is just studied by engineers who test it, evaluate it in certain ways, but this is not enough. So we have to understand it further. Then we always talk about humans versus machines, but this is not new. And you see in this figure, this is from 50s, uh, from Human Engineering for an Effective Air Navigation and Traffic Control System from 1951. And you see, what are machines good at? What are humans good at? So these discussions have been around for a long time, so it's not new, right? And this is one example from today, let's say. So this is from a robotic company. So they're saying, why should robots help humans at work? Because robots are better in certain things and humans are better in other things. Therefore, it's not correct to talk about humans versus machines, but actually, for me, also for my research, the envisioned future is humans and machines. And the future of AI really is humans and machines together. Thank you. I wonder if I could explore a tiny bit the idea of the machines, the robots, having expressions and the way they react. Surely it's simply a matter of the programming which goes into them from the humans. Um, but you'll tell me it's more complicated than that, won't you? Uh, well, as I said, the data is actually humans. So in a way, it's not just me telling the machine if it's like this, then the response is like that. We learn from how humans do things. So basically extracting from the human data, then we create automatic models. So that's why the way humans express would impact what that means for a machine. Particular in humans? In other words, those working on any development program or humans in general across so, the board? So the, there might be a difference. Yeah, so actually it would depend on the task, and this really goes back to what she said as well. If the task is related to creating technology for children with autism, and you would like to have robots that somehow could help them to understand better about expressivity because they have challenges interpreting, for instance, emotional expressions, then the tasks would be specific and different from creating something more let's say for art, so you could have a museum guide 
a robot for as a museum guide that is more instructional, but could still have some aspects of emotionality. So a more formal robot then it, it might be more relaxed yes. if it's, so, it's so dealing context, with somebody younger. Exactly. Context matters in every aspect, and context really means what the task is, who are the people, the participants or the users of that technology, where is this technology, is it in a museum, is it at home? Uh, so and and I guess things. one of the differences then between the human and the artificial intelligence is that we can switch according to the circumstances quite easily, <laughs> whereas the artificial intelligence has to be told. You mean the context? Yes, you know, because you're it, devising yes. artificial intelligence, at least at this time, for a particular task exactly. rather than across a whole range of tasks. So at the moment, still, yes, because modelling context to this level of detail is still difficult. But, um, you know, we can actually create also generic emotion recognition system, which means it doesn't need context, but its accuracy will be different if you challenge the context aspect of it. It's that phrase at the moment which worries me just ever so slightly. Can I invite you and everybody else, actually, to come and oh, join yeah, us for right. a, yeah, a little conversation yes, here? Just the opportunity as well for uh, any of you who want to ask some questions. There are some roving microphones which will, uh, will get organised. We might as well start that straight away because I see there's a... A gentleman there already with his hand up. Just a general rule on the microphone, if you wait for the microphone to come to you because it's being recorded and then uh, everybody listening back at the later stage can hear who you are and what you've got to say. Please, sir. Oh, no one wants to know who I am. But I have a question about, um, kind of for the whole panel, but like uh, Hatice in particular, like um, because you got me thinking about some of these things. This is all very interesting, and I liked how this cohered very nicely together. But since like 90s movies seem to be sort of a running theme during the past hour, Johnny Mnemonic, which is not a good movie, but it's a Keanu Reeves movie where uh, it is based on the short story, the novel, where he has the, uh, the stuff implanted in his brain, the microchips and all these things. So where does that fit? and the kind of like continuum between uh, AI and machines, like when machines are, sorry, when humans are becoming more machine-like and it's sci-fi, but it's actually like they are playing with this. They call it like neuroenhancement and all these things. So the idea of just sort of like, you know, hypothetically speaking, the idea that uh, it's like we have a little something like, you know, attached to us somehow. And so instead of like being able to, uh, having to Google devices, we can just sort of have it, have this database at our thing and be like, oh, our memory is enhanced and all of these things and we're able to connect and I was like it's not it's not imminent but I could imagine a, a weird scenario in the next 30 years where something like that becomes a thing I'd be curious I'd be curious where this fits in with anyone's alignments and things about they, they've talked about my mind is shooting the Google Glass straight away with that sort, yeah. of, uh, sort of thing but who, who wants to have a, have a crack at that uh, first of all to me it was more about narrative somehow your question but maybe I'm misinterpreting it yeah this form of neuroenhancement is one form of, of cyborgization, which is um, one of the s stories that people tell about artificial intelligence and technology as being able to um, improve and enhance our lives and our health. And uh, the eventual hope is that we might become entirely immortal thanks to all of these improvements or thanks to the fact that we could just replace any of our parts uh, with mechanical ones. Um, so I couldn't comment on this uh, state of the kind of um, Keanu Reeves's neuroenhancements in modern technology, but um, cyborgization is 
real and is very common. It just depends on, again, do you, when you hear that word, think about people who are half machine or do you think about people with cochlear implants um, against uh, hearing loss or even uh, just hearing aids? Um, or things like uh, prosthetics, which become increasingly advanced, um, the coil, any kinds of implants that help people um, function better, improve their health. Um, so with artificial intelligence, uh, the hope is that we can do in an increasing number of these things and also uh, to our cognitive skills, to our thinking skills, enhancing our memory. But again, it's a continuation of be the hope to be able to improve the human body. Makes to make an interesting distinction there, almost between what medical science can do and enhance for us. I guess the most easy example: glasses or the or, or the or, or the hearing aid against the kind of Keanu Reeves scenario in 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 a movie where somebody has an implant or is. I don't know, science fiction film is turned into a half-robot as, as a result. And it's, I, I wonder if it's almost an aspiration, if you like, within certain aspects of literature to see a, a fully, I don't know, to kind of, kind of human. Absolutely. I, I very much see it as a scale, um, starting from small things that, well... You, there, the um, glasses are still the most common way of improving your eyesight, but there's also um, contact lens implants. And well, I guess laser, laser surgery. surgery. Not, not that I'll be having that any day soon, but um, no, people, people I've, will, I've, are willing to do that. I've seen, I've heard of lots of people who have very successfully um, had that, and and so there, there is, there has always been a, um, a meeting of medical science and technology, um, and of new technological advancements being used fairly immediately to improve uh, medical science. And that is continuing with cyborgization. And so, in a way, the, the sort of peak cyborgization, the immortal human that has metal parts that you can replace at will, is in a way an artificial intelligence. Except, so it's the human becoming machine rather than the machine becoming human, as in the Terminator. Well, I, I think actually um, what will happen sooner, as in I'm expecting this next year, is um, um, Alexa in, or Siri in your AirPods. Um, because now that Bluetooth headsets have become so small that they are basically this knobby in your ear, and they are already connected to your phone that has these assistants, the next step is me just sitting here, my phone somewhere in my bag, with me just saying, Alexa, what's the weather outside? And hearing it straight into my ear. Yeah, Probably next year. I want to pick up on that as a theme of, of sorts, actually, because when we use the difference, say, between Alexa, the Amazon device developed here in Cambridge, everyone, and, and Google, with Amazon, we're 
was speaking to somebody named Alexa, whereas with Google, it's OK, Google. So I, I wonder if it makes any difference, that sort of humanisation of the device that we're, that we're speaking to. Yeah, well, this is the last one I'm going to speak to, though. <laughs> <laughs> I can contribute to that as well. Oh, you go ahead first, so, so basically, the humanization of technology is also not new. So even if you know the name might not be human or the appearance might not be human, the human's perception, actually, we, by perceiving, attribute certain characteristics. So even before there was any naming, for instance, when we started having um, in the car uh, navigation systems, depending on where the voice technology is female or male, already we start attributing certain characteristics and thinking, oh, this woman cannot tell me to go to right, to turn right or something. So in a way, the, the naming is not the only thing. We already actually are capable of attributing a lot of human qualities, even to technologies that did not have a name, but had some voice, a gendered voice, did not have a physical appearance. It was actually just embedded in the car. So we are very good at this. Of course, the more we put like a name or an appearance or, or color and so on, this will only help to enhance this. Mm -hmm. Did you remember when um, uh, Apple Siri changed the, the male voice used in the UK? There was, there was, there was uproar on the, uh, on the chat rooms for, for a while because this, this, this person from the south of England, goodness me, had been replaced by somebody from the north. Who'd, <laughs> who'd, have, who'd have possibly have thought that? Really? UK Siri is a northerner? I, I think he sounds like a northerner to me, but I'm from, <laughs> I, I'm from the well. south, so what, what do I know about these things? <laughs> Anyone here from the north who can verify, and then it turns out <laughs> that he's like from Bath or something. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, the the gendering of, of machines, I mean, precedes even the technologies that have voices. Um, ships have always been female for some reason. Um, cars are often given female names. Um, cars are often um, anthropomorphized. I mean. Uh, in films like Cars, and um, but there's also Herbie. Um, there's Kit from Knight Rider. Oh, he has a voice. That's a boy. Um, so there's this very, very long uh, history of machines uh, that even that have nothing in common with a human being um, being humanized. Um, but when Siri and Alexa and Cortana started being introduced, uh, they were all. Um, launched with female names and um, with uh, female voices as a default. Um, and there was a lot of pushback against that because of that idea of, um, well, are we, um, do people like bossing uh, a woman around? Is this just sort of reinforcing the stereotype that the secretary is a woman, that the person that you tell uh, to buy the milk is a woman? Um, so then, only then they started introducing male voices, and Google, um, as a response to this pushback, decided to call its assistant Google Assistant and launch with both uh, genders' mm -hmm. voices. And now there is um, a, a gender-neutral voice assistant, so with a completely androgynous voice, which they've somehow managed to synthesize by, <coughs> from picking bits and pieces from male and female voices. I'd like to see if there's any more uh, questions that we can uh, answer for. There's a gentleman, I think, right at the top there. Go ahead, sir. Uh, 
Uh, thank you. Yes, uh, thanks to all the uh, panel members for some really interesting talks. Um, my, my question was, I guess, sort of born out of the, our third speaker's um, uh, presentation. I'm sorry I didn't catch your name. Um, but I guess it um, would be useful to hear everybody's thoughts. You spoke quite a lot about how people, or particular subsections of uh, society, might respond quite negatively mm -hmm. to um, an artificial intelligence sort of making suggestions for them um, uh, based, on their, based on its algorithms. I was, I don't know for sure quite to what extent, um, I guess, artificial intelligence is being used in other areas of, um, of society um, in an increasing way that we're maybe not quite as aware of. Things, examples that kind of spring to mind are, for example, um, the newsprint, um, a kind of automatic, um, automated sort of a generation of news stories, mm -hmm. um, not fake news, but in terms of reporting on actual events, um, but also, um, uh, yeah, that was kind of my, the, the key one that I was thinking about. And I wondered whether we had any sort of data about how people respond to things that they traditionally would have thought would be generated by humans, but are now increasingly being generated by, um, by uh, algorithms that we may not be aware of. Uh, another example I thought of as I was thinking about my question was, um, for example, chatbots, um, when we have um, uh, kind of customer services, both on computer services and also by phone, do we have any data on how people respond to these? Do they respond better or worse than to a human when they may not realize that they're speaking with a robot? Um, and with sort of newsprint, do we get more shares, more comments, um, less? Or, or, or is, is there any difference? Or do we see any different patterns when people are uh, unknowingly interacting with what they assume to be a human, but actually a robot? Let's find out. That, those, um, particularly when you, you phone up, you phone up your bank or somebody, and, you, mm -hmm. and, and the robot lady asks you to, to t tell her what your number is for, for your bank, and then, and then all of a sudden you realise, you know, they're, they're sometimes they're so good that uh, it, it takes you a few moments before the brain registered that you're not, uh, you're not speaking to a, a real person. What's, what's, uh, what's the reaction to them? And, yeah, some more, some more examples, perhaps. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, it's a, the, the uh, automatically generated news... Is, uh, is, a, is a tremendous kind of area of concern, uh, and it's a matter of trust. Um, the, those ideas of the computer, I mean, in, for example, like the you know, Associated Press or Forbes saying what's happening in the markets, um, the idea that if it's straight, you know, straight from the computer, that it is more trustworthy, you know, that it doesn't have a kind of a human spin on it. But they read very, very bland sometimes, you know, like, why mm. the Acme company's shares have gone mm. down. It's not uh, mm. any depth as to, you know, Acme company... Um, director resigns, which is what you really want to want to find out from a news story. Yeah, oh, it's extremely thin in that kind of commentary and kind of what things mean, mm. but sort of just the facts, and it is more trustworthy. The news stories that are almost like the text you get from your GP, you know, where they're saying, you have an appointment at such and such a time. So I, I do really trust that. Um, but in terms of kind of bringing things in, what we were talking about with things like um, responses to uh, news stories, I and mean, then discovering in the course of an experiment, a reader being told, actually, this was made by a computer, who wrote it, um, is, I think, a question of uh, ventriloquism and, uh, and um, deception, if that makes sense, for the response to something you thought was from a human that is actually from a computer, or conversely, something that is from a bot, you know, that has borrowed uh, the image and borrowed the, uh, some of the demographic data from a real Facebook user to make a fake, fake Facebook user, and for kind of the statements to come out that way. Um, so I think that the trust and kind of where it's coming from would depend very much 
on what kind of information it is, if it's factual information, uh, whether it's or it's um, uh, insight, analysis, meaning, um, you know, the or or prediction of what's coming up in the future. I think we have a lot more trust for kind of computers telling us what's happening now than computers telling us what will happen. Um, the, that's my personal opinion in terms of trust. Um, but I think it's just that: Do you know where it's coming from? And if it's revealed that there's say a bit more computer than you thought, or a bit more human than you thought, um, then that's where a kind of a feeling of being taken advantage of being fooled, being tricked, and that real negativity comes from. Yeah, and, and, and on, on this particular point, and talking about the chatbot, um, mm -hmm. I, I, and I do apologize, I haven't seen the recent uh, uh, surveys about this, but there's been some research published about two years ago that predicted that by 2020, so basically tomorrow, 80% of American businesses will use chatbots. Something must be working. This is an interesting one. Right, any other... Ah, yes, we've got a few over here. There's a, a, a lady in the centre there. Hello, and thank you so much for the panel. I can appreciate that it's for women <laughs> sitting on it as well. Um, my concern, and you are obviously all experts in your field, and you are within the AI field. Um, I wonder, you know, some things, when we put them out in the world, we can't put them back in a box, uh, like we did with Internet. And with AI, my question is, have you heard of any big countries, uh, big power countries working on actually maybe an umbrella or a frame, what AI means and how far are we allowed to go, given that some powers are working on warfare and actually you are mentioning the kind of good advantages of uh, AI helping people getting better health, but what it's like the undestructive uh, soldier, et cetera, and yeah, where, where are the borders and how far are we gonna go? And, are you, are you calling for an AI code of conduct? Maybe, of sorts, really, yeah, yeah. What, like a uh, consortium of what's what. Where's the border? Mm. I kind of work in a world of my my day job writing about uh, digital media of trade association after trade association. So, is is there the association of uh, of, of AI operators uh, somewhere who are draw, who are drawing these things up? There's quite a few, yes. Um, that's a problem in itself, really. But that, uh, indeed. Um, so, um, at my centre, we did um, some scoping research last year uh, where we just pulled all of the different sets of AI ethics principles that different bodies have brought out uh, over the past few years, and there are dozens of them. Sometimes it's uh, individual corporations publishing their own AI ethics principles, so Google has done that, Microsoft, but also um, like consultancy groups like Accenture and uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers. Then there's nations doing it, um, so um, China has, but also Malta and Finland. And then there's the even uh, larger overarching structure, so there's the EU doing these things, there's the UN. Um, all of these principles tend to be quite, um, uh, well, overlap, uh, they tend to overlap in uh, a large sense, but in such a way that you can't really make proper laws out of them. Um, uh, they are a bit like uh, AI should not hinder this and should cause flourishing in that. Are, are governments getting involved at all at any, yes. at any, at any level? It's, it's not beyond associations. Uh, actually, there was a hearing uh, in, the, in the parliament in the UK uh, from different professors. And in fact, um, Matea Jamnik from our department was heading this. So hearing about the current state, the dangers and so on of artificial intelligence uh, in 
the House of Lords. So this took place partially end of last year and early this year. And then they released the report as well with different suggestions and so on. But this was one of the early steps. And not only you know, getting actually the perspective from media or, or various other bodies, because sometimes this comes from top down, but here they wanted to really hear from people who work and who create the technology. Uh, because most of the time there are dangers in terms of very highly respected people talking about AI, uh, but they're not really creating AI itself, so they were just one of the dangers. But the current state of the technology is nowhere close to what they're talking about in terms of future. So there's a danger there, and basically even in computing there are a lot of efforts now for ethical computing, and people do this for different fields because computing is a huge field, for different subfields, people started considering. So what are the dangers of the technology we create and how we can actually avoid some of these dangers at the level of creation and design before it gets out and is spotted by people or by governments because by then it's almost too late, so to say. But, but I think uh, sometimes uh, like government makes mis governments make mistakes at a very small level as well. And I'm thinking, uh, to, uh, hearing your question, I'm thinking about the, the case of this artificial intelligence, uh, Sophia, I think, which was made a citizen. What is what's the technical term for that? No, no, it is a robot it's by Hanson Robotics. Okay. Robotics, yeah. So it's a robot, basically. So, so she or it or whatever, they... Yes. It, okay, was made a citizen of, I think, Saudi Arabia a couple of years ago. But, you know, being a citizen of a country, basically, you, that, that, you, you get rights and you also get duties associated. Does it mean that this artificial intelligence, this robot, now has legal responsibility for their action? And, and are, they, do they, are they autonomous? Are they, do they have agency in their action? So, so, I'm sorry, this is a series of questions that mm. you... Yeah. Well, so, Question so, triggered. Sophia is just a hyped-up chatbot, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, <laughs> actually, we don't consider. You're not here to defend the robot itself. The robot <laughs> in the robotics community is yeah. not considered a robot. But only, not only that, UK Parliament had the Pepper robot yeah. in the Parliament this year sometime, yeah. and like trying to demonstrate what the robot is not capable of. So if the parliaments are bringing the robot and they're showing it from a completely wrong angle, this is the sort of image you are projecting to the whole society, to the whole UK, because it's in the top place possible in the UK, right? The parliament, and that's what you're claiming. But in fact, what they were showing with the Pepper robot was quite a scripted behavior, was not autonomous. Mm -hmm. Pepper is not able to do these things. And there's always a danger with uh, any parliament which gets involved with technology, that there's usually a lag time of a couple of years before they, at the very least, get themselves organized and by the time any such rules have been brought in the technology has of course moved on once more well on the one hand there's that but on the other hand there's also heading off in completely the wrong direction because you've been influenced by a little plastic robot um which you're pretty dismissive of uh, <laughs> the robot community <laughs> um well th this is this is uh, also a question of of expectation management mm. I mean, I am really, really, really happy with my Roomba, which is a robot vacuum cleaner, and you press on a switch and it starts vacuuming my house. And I'm not expecting it to be intelligent or to respond when I say, uh, stop bumping into my toes, Roomba. It's, 
But if you start having those expectations and start regulating for whenever Roomba starts uh, disobeying, then um, you're missing out on the real issues around, for instance, do I want to install the Roomba app whereby the little robot can map out my house and send a map of my house to the Roomba makers? And you'll find a, data, a whole different set of data protection issues, I feel, with, uh, with, with that. Have we got any more questions that we'd like to uh, have asked of the gentleman uh, down there? Hi. Um, I, I actually drive a, a Tesla which has autonomous, level three autonomous um, capability, which basically, are you, I presume you're familiar with the levels of auto autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. Now, the old, at the moment, it, it, can, it can pretty much steer, it can take junctions, um, uh, but it can't stop at lights. But all that sort of stuff is happening very soon when full self-driving is, is, is going to be launched. But obviously, these things are very much regulated. But there's been a lot of stories in the news that take the um, that talk about the old, uh, you know, the, these these technologies are obviously here and can happen. But again, if you look at the condition where, if you're driving, and the car is in control, um, uh, making the decision between um, actually crashing into mm. trying to avoid a pedestrian versus trying to save the the driver of the car, and what sort of, what's your opinion on, on these kind of um, decisions? Um, because really, these sort of decisions are pretty much um, out there even now, especially with the level of autonomy with, with cars. So, so basically, there's a lot of discussion on this, and although the promise is that everything is ready and so on, actually, if you talk, so the problem is, and you were saying this robotics community is you know, not uh, regarding, it's not true. The, the, the problem is you hear a lot of hype from other uh, sources, and you do not attend the conferences to hear really what the state of things are. So of course, there is uh, quite a lot of advancement, but we are far from just allowing autonomous machines to do things, to do decisions like this. I mean, the, all the uh, you know, well-known names in machine learning AI would warn about this. So the problem is there is demand, but the issue is they have not really been investigated to the extent that they, they, they can't really take over the, the actual decision-making in terms of who's going to live or die in, in the hospital or, or in terms of who you're, you're going to hit, whether you know, you're going to, so these are like hypothetical situations, but we are not there yet. No, no, of course they're not, no, no they're not, but it's obviously the ethics behind that is, is what, what I'm sort of pointing out. I'm, I'm just giving the example of the car, but obviously... Yeah, but first of all, I want, what I want to say is that the technology is not there yet. People are talking as if the technology is there, and the final bit is to let it happen or not, and the ethical aspects. The ethical aspects are very important, but the technology is also not there yet. So this, this is the important bit to bear in mind as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, the decision-making aspect, it's very complex. I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to say that there is an algorithm that, that, that no, works no, no, and, and, and it has been tested and evaluated. I'm just pointing out the technology that, that is there can, do, can go so far, but we're, you know, other areas of decision making. I mean, the, you're talking about in the robotics, you know, which is robots that have got certain aspects of, you know, you can have conversations with them, but they can only go so far. But yet we're, we're almost at the stage where we're allowing cars to drive themselves across America with, with the likes of Tesla because they've got this huge neural network that obviously is learning all the time from literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of vehicles. That's the kind of data you need 
in order to the sample size, because you talk about um, data as being one of the key components of machine learning. And obviously, the, the level at which you can do, when you're doing a computer game, you have people um, playing the game um, and then answering the questionnaire after it. But the problem with that is you've got such a small sample size. You need millions of people to get the more sample, the bigger your sample size, you know, you've got to have a huge sample to get the, the sort of answer to that. And, and I think that's a lot of the problems. You don't really need millions. I mean, we already show even, and the reason I showed this is even with actually limited set of participants, when you actually test it on others, it actually works. So the adaptation and, and the level of, you know, for people, the level of adjustment works. So technology is good and you can model things and not always needing millions depending on the task and the context. Of course, if you have more data, it can be better, but not always, as she also mentioned, the data, we cannot assume the data is always accurate as well. Just because the data is collected does not mean the data is accurate and therefore we should trust these models 100%. Like the, the Netflix example is very good. If people are sharing their passwords, of course there's a lot of data, but the model that uses this data now, like how accurate it is for the purposes of adaptation to this user. And another thing, when bearing in mind the ethics of these uh, developing technologies, um, a problem that because of that um, extreme focus on the trolley problem of do you hit this person or that person, is that another, a lot of more pressing ethical issues get overlooked, such as, well, um, you, uh, so a level three autonomous car means it can't drive itself, but it can take away a lot of uh, separate tasks, but that means that you're less engaged when driving. Mm. So that means that, for instance, you're paying less attention, that there is a higher chance that you might fall asleep behind the wheel. There's a chance that people might overestimate um, what their car can do because it's called autonomous even when it technically isn't. Exactly and right. I mean, the other thing that has been proven with, proven with cars is that because you're engaged and then suddenly you have to take over because the car cannot make a decision, you're not as switched on to take over at the time is needed. So that can cause a lot of problems as well. So we have to focus on even these aspects of like when the takeover happens. It's not just a matter of now I'm telling you take over so you should take over because if you're disengaged or sleeping, you might not be able to take over. <laughs> Okay, so right. pay attention when you drive your... <laughs> <laughs> I usually get a bit distressed by yeah. <laughs> I, I want to know if you bought it from the, uh, from the Grand Arcade or not, is the real question I need to know. <laughs> um, thank you very much for your question. Thank you also to our, our panel. It's uh, uh, five o'clock or just after, so we should wrap up now. But uh, please, everyone, show your appreciation for the panel. Thank you.